Hello, everybody, and welcome to the GFOA Fiscal First Aid Podcast. I am Shane Cavanaugh, the Senior Manager of Research with GFOA, and I'm here today with Sam Savage. Sam Savage is the Executive Director of ProbabilityManagement.org. That's a nonprofit devoted to the communication and calculation of uncertainty, and that is certainly a thing that uh, many finance officers have to deal with here in the current times. Sam is maybe best known for his book, The Flaw of Averages, Why We Underestimate Risk in the Face of Uncertainty, and he's also a consulting professor at Stanford University. He's got a very good history in uh, the kind of research field with he's been a visiting professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business and the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and is also a fellow of the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. And Sam has also been very involved in GFOA over the years. So he's done a couple of articles for GFOA Magazine. He's presented at a few of the GFOA conferences, and he's also helped us out with a lot of our research at GFOA about decision-making under uncertainty. So with that, um, Sam, um, let's maybe move into a first question here. Your book is called The Flaw of Averages. Can you explain to our listeners what The Flaw of Averages is? Sure, it's it's based on mathematics. It's been known for uh, over a hundred years, um, uh, but people haven't heard of it. Uh, it basically states that plans based on uncertain assumptions are wrong on average. And here are some obvious examples. Uh, it it arises when you replace an uncertainty with a single number. So you've probably heard of the statistician who drowns in the river that's on average three feet deep. I mean, that's one obvious example. Uh, Here's a more sobering example. Consider a drunk wandering back and forth on a busy highway whose average position is the center line of the highway. This means that when the drunk is at his average position, he's alive, but on average, he's dead. So you can't really represent an uncertainty by by its average. this tends to happen, you know, when the boss says, what are tax revenues going to be? And you say, gee, I don't know. Uh, and, and the boss says, give me a number. And then you give the boss an average. That's sort of the fork in the road to hell here. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I could see a lot of uh, potential applications for that. Um, I know you've talked about one about projects being over budget and behind schedule. And I think isn't your rule of thumb Um Something like a project has a, on average, a, not on average, but a, is a, will succeed 20% of the time or something like that. Can you say a bit more about that rule of thumb and where it comes from? Well, uh, yeah, that, that rule of thumb says if you have to give an estimate that something's going to work, start out with one chance in five. But, but l- let me give a sort of a specific uh, example that might apply uh, to say uh, zoning a new hotel in a city. Uh, So, you know, a hotel is going to require a lot of zoning permits. We've got, you know, uh, water and electricity and all this stuff. Um, Imagine that we've got to get uh, 10 permits through the zoning office before the hotel uh, can open. And of course, we need those hotel revenues as soon as it opens. Just imagine that each permit takes on average six weeks to make it through the process. Uh, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty around that six weeks, but you know, on average, each one will take six weeks. So 
So, you know, your boss says, hey, Shane, when will the permitting be done? So, you know, the hotel construction can go ahead. And you say, I don't know, boss. I don't know how long the water will take or the electricity and so on. And the boss says, give me a number. You say, well, listen, boss, on average, these permits will be done in six weeks. So, hey, on average, I think we'll be able to start construction in six weeks. Well, too bad you said that because there's only one chance in a thousand you're going to start in six weeks. The way to see that is imagine each permit comes in over or under six weeks with a 50-50 chance. Then to be done in six weeks, it means all 10 have to be done in six weeks. It's like you flip 10 heads in a row on a coin, which is roughly one in a thousand. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. I see a lot of application for this in public finance. Uh, one that I've encountered, and I would certainly like your perspective if this counts as the flaw of averages, but I believe it does, is in local government, it's not uncommon for departments to build slack into their operating budget, right? Some padding in case the bad thing happens. And let's say you've got 10 departments in a city government, and each department has a 10% chance of incurring unexpected costs in the amount of $1 million. So they each build $1 million worth of padding into their budget, right, for a total of 10. Um, but on average, they only need $1 million. So you've got $9 million extra. Now, I think what you're kind of teaching to tell us is that we don't want to over-rely on the number of $1 because it could be more than that. But certainly, it's going to be probably a lot less than the $10 million that all departments together are putting into the padding for their budget. Yeah. So that's a... That's uh, a great example. Uh, it, it's, it's called sandbagging in most environments. And it does depend on what kind of risk you're willing to live with, which I know we're getting to in a second. But uh, again, let's put it this way. If each of the 10 departments has only a 10% chance of exceeding their budget, and then you add those, all those departments together, and we're assuming the departments are independent, then the chance, and suppose each, suppose each budget, let's pick actual numbers, suppose each department uh, asks for a million bucks, and if they do that, they have a 10% chance of, of, of blowing their own budget. Then when you roll up all 10 to 10 million bucks, the probability of exceeding that 10 million buck uh, limit is not 10%, but it's like one in 100,000 or something uh, mm, because right. of because you've diversified. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, we've actually seen real local governments, real live local governments, not just the theoretical ones we're talking about, um, save a lot of money by having this realization, essentially pooling the risks across these departments in a centralized but smaller um, contingency that the departments can have access to. So there are definitely real life implications of this. All right. And let's kind of start to get into some of those real life implications for the finance officer. And that's really about recognizing risk, right? So your book, The Flaw of Averages, is about how to make better decisions under uncertainty. And when it comes to recognizing risk as part of that, you need to see the world differently. So in your view, what skills or practices separate the risk aware managers from everybody else? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, risk is a very poorly defined word. So, you know, um, is there a risk that XYZ stock will go down next week? And everyone says, sure, there is. No, not me. 
I've shorted XYZ stock. The risk for me is that XYZ goes up. So we need to recognize right away that risk is in the eye of the beholder. And in a city government environment, there isn't just one beholder. There are a bunch of stakeholders. And different stakeholders are worried about different things. And if you if you represent everything as a single average, then the different parties are not going to be able to recognize the different risks. You know, for example, I've been involved in, in sort of safety uh, regulation in the utility industry. And, you know, you've got the rate payers who want to keep the cost low. You've got innocent victims of accidents who want to keep the safety risks low. Uh, you've got people who don't want to lose uh, gas or electricity or electric uh, capability because of lack of reliability. And these different stakeholders have really got to trade off the risks in different areas. So uh, if, if we're going to use the risk, use the word risk, I want, to, I want it to be extremely specific. The, the risk of losing more than $1 million, the risk of more than two people a year injured by transformer explosions, uh, that sort of thing. We have to be really specific when we use that term. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I think you're maybe beginning to um, get into a, a topic that I know you love is probability. And what I think was inherent in some of the things you said is to discuss risk properly, you need to think of risk as numbers, not just, you know, the risk is high, the risk is low, but you have to put some numbers to it for it to really be meaningful. Maybe you can say a bit more about that concept. Sure, sure. So um, I tell people, that in the way I approach this thing, I do not, I do not assume any uh, prior understanding of probability or statistics. And uh, that it really usually doesn't take me more than 45 minutes to repair the damage if they've had such training. And uh, people say, damage? What damage? It actually has a name. Uh, I call it uh, post-traumatic statistics disorder or PTSD. And what you have to understand is that the theory of probabilities and statistics is powerful and elegant. Uh, well, and so is the steam locomotive, and they were developed at the same time. Uh, in our engineering school awesome. at Stanford, we, in our engineering school at Stanford, we no longer teach steam locomotive motion, uh, but we do teach steam era statistics. And what's changed here is that computers can simulate the uncertainty and start giving you an intuitive understanding of what's going on. And I know that you've used some of the simulation methods with some cities, um, but, I, but I do want to kind of frame this uh, in, the following, in the following way. Let's talk about what I call the arithmetic of uncertainty. And I'm just going to define that for you. Arithmetic can tell you that x plus y equals z. The arithmetic of uncertainty says, what do you want z to be? Here are your chances. Yeah. So I think kind of, you know, an awareness of these probabilities and the fact that adding them up. And I think it maybe goes to something like you were using with your project example earlier on, right? If you start to see the world in this way, you might recognize, for example, as a finance officer that if you're looking at your capital budget and the department says, oh yeah, you know, we're going to have this project ready to go 
by August or something like this. And we need you as the finance officer to start lining up the finances to get ready to go in August. That's going to tie up some money. But if you say, well, you know, we actually know that if they're basing their this schedule on a number of assumptions that are unlikely to be met, when you add up those probabilities, maybe we don't need to tie up that money right now. Maybe there's other ways to do this that recognize that risk and keep the financial pressure off us, right? So awareness of, I think, some of these concepts you're talking about can have some very powerful real-life implication. And to your point, yes, we have been using these at GFOA as part of the risk analyses we help cities with and has proven to be a very powerful concept and uh, really provides some great insights into the cities that we've worked with. So that's definitely true. These concepts are easy to explain. The hard part is getting anyone to understand them. And here's the way I tend to look at it. I'm an Excel user, and so I view everything from the point of view of Excel. And if we go back to the zoning problem, right, it's easy for me to write a little model in Excel that says, here's when the water permit comes through, here's where the electric permit comes through, and I've got a time for each of those things. You know, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it is. As an Excel user, I like to think of Excel having a third dimension so it goes back into the spreadsheet like a thousand times, like a thousand parallel universes. And I simultaneously have got different permit times in each of the thousand universes. And to find out the chances of being done in six weeks, there's a very simple formula. It's basically count if. So, so I'll say, here's my finish time, but I do count if in that third dimension. We, we can discuss the technology later on. You can just do it in native Excel. Count if finish time less than six weeks, and then divide by a thousand, because that's going to give me the chance. And if you do that, by the way, you'll find out that it's like around one in a thousand that you'll be done in six weeks. And this whole count if idea, you just add that one formula, it's a native Excel formula, to counting through that third dimension in Excel, and suddenly you're riding the thing, you know, like a bicycle. It's completely sort of interactive. You know, you can't explain to someone how to ride a bicycle. It's easy to explain, but no one's ever going to learn how to ride a bike after you do it. You actually have to ride the bicycle, and that's where these interactive models in Excel are just so important. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think you also, I think your explanation was good. It's like, the way I've explained it, it's like a thousand different scenarios in a model, right? Because the, um, I think many GFW members are familiar with the idea of having an Excel model that says, well, here's our baseline situation. Here's a pessimistic and here's an optimistic. You've got three. Um if you had a thousand, you have a lot more perspective on what could possibly happen and what your chances are of success or failure when you're looking at a thousand different scenarios absolutely. simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and with the thousand, you see, you've got, you know, interest rates up, stock market down. You've got, you've got, um, you've got uh, things like pandemics. And, uh, and and things like pandemics uh, behave very differently than things like, uh, say, stock prices, because mm-hmm. the stock prices are all independent. 
And the pandemic hits the whole world at once. Now, if you look at averages, that completely goes away. There's a very small chance of having a pandemic, right? Yeah, but when you have it, everybody has it at once. And so you can't just look at the chance that you have a pandemic. You have to look at the manner in which that uncertainty hits. Mm, and it, right. Yeah. Good point. And kind of a multi-dimensionality when you're looking at a thousand scenarios, you don't have to vary just one variable. If you've only got three, you've got to be pretty choosy on which variables you're altering in which way. When you've got a thousand, you've got, you know, I, for practic all practical purposes that you can accommodate um, almost infinite um, combinations. So that's, uh, yeah, well said. Um, yeah, but now I think maybe a follow-up question to that is this all sounds fine and good, right? But this has to be communicated to folks and particular elected officials and elected officials may not be like, oh, you've got a thousand scenarios. Let's talk about that. Um, they might have, you know, maybe not able to get their minds around that or otherwise not really be able to grasp the kind of level of thing we're talking about. So when it comes to communicate, communicating uncertainty to folks, what have you found are some of the best ways to do that in an understandable and actionable ways? That is very important. First of all, I always start with something like the uh, zoning uh, problem, where if you do it in your head, you say we'll be done in six weeks. And if you look at the thousand scenarios, you understand there's only one chance in a thousand of being done in six weeks. That tends to get people's attention. Uh, there are several things you can do. And remember, you're trying not to trigger uh, their PTSD. Uh, one way, though, the best way is to actually get one of these spreadsheet models into their hands where they can adjust things. So they you can give them a little model where they can say, well, what if we budget a million? What's the chance of breaking our budget? What if we budget a million ten? What's the chance of breaking our budget? Because the idea of chance is really the thing you want to you want to impart to them. And now, now I'm going to be glib. This is not what you say out of the box. But when the boss says, "Give me a number," you really want to say, uh, "No, you give me a number, and I'll tell you the chances we'll make that number." Right? Because that is really where we're headed uh, with this. Uh, I'll tell you one of the huge things that helps, by the way is that with computers at our nonprofit, we've developed an open standard for storing uncertainty in an unambiguous, auditable way. And, and let me describe what I mean by unambiguous uncertainty. I'll bet that all, almost all of the people in your organization have played cards of some sort once or twice in their life. You take a card deck. A card deck is a beautiful auditable, unambiguous representation of uncertainty. So sure, it's uncertain. And yet I know there are 52 cards in there. I just don't know what order they're coming out in, right? So sure, I know there are a bunch of different levels of tax revenue. And what I'm just going to say is, okay, I don't know exactly what they could be, but I will model them as a deck of a thousand cards where I've limited it to a thousand outcomes. A thousand outcomes is way more accurate than one outcome. So, so I think the card deck is a useful analogy and it's auditable. So after you lose the card game, 
you can go back and say, I want to see that deck. I thought so. You removed all the sevens, <laughs> right? If, if you start representing uncertainty, like decks of cards, you can go back and audit. It gives people a lot more confidence in the lessons we're learning. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, your kind of point about confidence reminded me of uh, one of our GFWA members who had successfully communicated this kind of uncertainty to her board. And in her case, it was tax revenues. So what are the revenues going to be for the next year? And so she had calculated a whole range of possible revenues. But and rather than saying, hey, here's a thousand different outcomes, city council, chew on that. Um, she said, here's my best guess. And here is a picture of the kind of that a range, if you will, but in picture form. And for those that kind of know a little bit about statistics, it was in the form of a normal distribution. If you don't know that, don't worry about it. Just consider it a range. And she just then pointed out like a few different um, points on this range and focused the city council on those particular points. Like, hey, guys, if you, know, you want a 50% chance of being over budget, you pick this point, right? You'll get higher revenue in your forecast, but it means that there's a greater chance of the forecast being wrong and us being over budget. However, if you make choose the more conservative revenue forecast, yes, it's true you'll have less money right now when we're trying to come up with the budget, but it's also true that there is a smaller chance that we will exceed the budget during the course of the year and you will then have to figure out how to rebalance it in the middle of the year, which no one really ever wants to do. So by showing just a few points on this kind of along the continuum of possibilities, she was really able to engage folks in the conversation in a very positive and productive way, while also kind of taking into account this full range of possibility. Well, well that's a beautiful example. I know who you're talking about. It was really, that was excellent work on, on her part. And, and she came in, and you should all come in sort of thinking, Oh, you pick a budget. If you really pick the correct average of all the things that could happen to you, there's probably a 50% chance you will blow your budget. And this now takes you back to the, no, the, the notion that risk is in the eye of the beholder. Um, everyone has a different risk attitude. And so she did go to the council and say, oh, yeah, you pick that number of ex that that expenditure at this point uh it implies a 50 percent chance you're going to blow your budget are you really comfortable with that and it was a time of fiscal duress as i recall and they were not comfortable with a 50 50 chance of blowing their budget and she ultimately talked them into or led them allowed them to see that they were more comfortable with one chance in three of blowing their budget now what's important about the story i think is as the financial situation improved over the years, but she, she had started this dialogue about the chance of blowing your budget, the, the risk attitudes of the people involved reverted from one in three back to one in two. That is a 50-50 chance. They were, they were more confident as the financial uh, situation improved and their risk attitude changed, but it was all built around the chances of blowing their budget. Yeah, and that's true. And they had used that when they were kind of, we'll say, more risk averse during that period. They had built up their reserves quite a bit 
So I think that had played into their kind of, we'll say, increased risk tolerance as they built up their reserves from kind of something that was very low to um, a pretty healthy reserve. And that enabled them to be a little more confident about what kind of risk they were willing to take on. All right. Well, Sam, maybe I, I think you mentioned a little bit about this, but uh, maybe we can get specific for folks on the advocate, the topic of computer simulation and using the sort of computerized tools you've alluded to so far. So if folks were interested in doing that and taking a look at some of these open source free tools you talked about, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, I, I would recommend that the first thing they do is look at that article that you and I wrote a few years ago on incorporating uh, simulation into, uh, into government finance. Uh, the, the first comment is that until very recently, uh, it took very specialized software to do this. Uh, in around 2012, uh, there, there really was a breakthrough in Excel where native Excel can do uh, just wonderful simulation all by itself. And so uh, I'm sure, you know, you can get them the link to that that article. It's on our website as well at our nonprofit. Uh, Absolutely. But, but also it has a bunch of Excel models that you can play with. And playing with those models is like riding little bicycles. By far, the best way to learn how to ride a bicycle is with a bicycle. You get very little out of reading books on bicycles uh, or watching movies about bicycles uh, or PowerPoint presentations on bicycles. And so I really urge you to, to, the article is there to help explain the examples that Shane and I came up with, but I would, about, I would say, yeah. What about podcasts on bicycles? <laughs> no, they're not very effective either, unfortunately, oh, right. unless, <laughs> unless they mention, you know, a link to an article with a bicycle in it. Uh, so uh, that's sort of the first part. The, the second thing is uh, our nonprofit has developed tools that, that Shane's been using that help you exploit this new power of Excel. And the, the, the way to think about what the, the, the tools help you do is they're, they're using a, a very powerful command in Excel called the data table. And the data table lets you add this third dimension to Excel. So I don't know how many of your uh, listeners here um, have ever watched Rick and Morty, it, it, the cartoon show. If you saw the last Super Bowl, there was a Rick and Morty cartoon, but it's a, it, it's, don't let your kids watch this thing. This is adult, but uh, it's, it's a cartoon show about a, a drunken uh, mad scientist um, who flies his nephew uh, around, or no, his grandson, I guess, around uh, the multiverse in a flying saucer uh, full of empty liquor bottles. And we, it makes you think about how many different things could happen in this, in this multiverse. So I, the way I think of the multiverse in Excel is, okay, I'm not looking at one sheet. I'm looking at a thousand sheets which had different discount rates, had different tax revenues. And what I want to look, as I look down through that, using that county of statement, I can find the chance that I blew my budget, the chance that I paid down a certain debt, the chance of this, the chance of that. Well, good. Well, to kind of close out our podcast, maybe let's just talk about 
what should folks be doing coming out of this? And I think you've mentioned a few things already, certainly, as I think you said, starting to ride the bicycle, accessing that article, and with it, some of the smaller models that were produced that give people a sense of how this kind of Monte Carlo and a thousand different scenario type of uh, models work, right? And what else should folks be thinking about doing well, coming out of this? So I, so I think once they look at the models, we've got a bunch of free tools on our website to help you do this. We also have an ongoing series of webinars um, that are meant to get people absolutely off the ground. People who have not written, written the statistical bicycle at all, uh, we start from scratch and help you think about how to make chance-based decisions from scratch in Excel. Uh, you don't have to do it in Excel. You can do it in Python or R. Uh, people who are using those environments typically um, don't need as much help getting off the ground because they maybe thought about it more analytically. But we like to start in Excel. I work in Excel. And uh, so, we, you know, we have a series of, of webinars always running on how to get started in this area. Cool. All right. Well, great. Well, Sam, appreciate you taking the time here to chat with us today. I think it's been very informative. Everybody, I want to thank you for listening to the GFOA Fiscal First Aid podcast. Again, this has been Shane Cavanaugh, the Senior Manager of Research with GFOA.